Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thanks for your support on Patreon, Steve Cloudier. Steve was present in Captain Monroe's regiment during the Battle of Breitenfeld, and fortunately he helped hold the line and keep it all together, even while the Saxons fled the battle. Thanks for that, Steve. This, of course, is all a lie, but if you would like me to lie about you, you know where to go. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails, where you can support this show and get great shoutouts like these. More on that later, but for now, enjoy the latest episode of the Thirty Years' War. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 55 of the Thirty Years' War. In the last episode, we prepared the ground for arguably the most important battle of the Thirty Years' War, examining in the process how the political situation in the Holy Roman Empire changed so that Gustavus Adolphus managed, by autumn 1631, to have both Protestant electors on his side. This was a vital development for reasons of propaganda as well as strategy, because it meant that the Swedish king could pose as the saviour of German liberties and as the defender of the faith, while not having to fear attack from either Brandenburg or Saxony at the same time. Of course, as we noted, the motives which compelled both electors to join Gustavus's side were varied indeed, and did not necessarily suggest that a great corner had been turned, whereby these figures would be henceforth finished with their emperor. Gustavus did not trust them completely, and he was wise not to, but he did anticipate that the contribution of the Saxon elector in particular, with his 18,000 recruits, could alter the balance of power. Adding these men to his army of some 24,000, Gustavus felt confident to march at the head of an army 42,000 strong to challenge Count Tilly's army of 35,000 men. The battle could take place nowhere else other than Saxony, since that electorate was currently being overrun by the emperor's forces, and if Gustavus wanted to show he was serious about defending his new allies, he'd have to make a public show of rushing to Leipzig, the first great city of John George of Saxony, to fall to the invader. As we know, Gustavus did not make it to Leipzig in time, but he did make it to Breitenfeld, a town some eight kilometres northwest of the city. It was here that the Lion of the North decided to make his stand, and in the process, make the previously unknown town of Breitenfeld Famous. Well, famous to historical nerds like ourselves, at least. A small reminder, we have covered this battle before in our 17th century warfare series, where we go into more detail on Gustavus's battle tactics 
and what they meant for the conflict as a whole. So even though this episode is covering Breitenfeld, we won't be going over old ground that we've covered already and giving a detailed narrative of the battle and which army moved where, etc. Instead, our focus will be on the battle's ramifications. So with that being said, I hope you're ready to check out this incredible turning point in the history of the conflict. If we decide upon battle, the stake will be nothing less than a crown and two electorates. Fortune is changeable, and the inscrutable decrees of heaven may, for our sins, give the victory to our enemies. My kingdom, it is true, even after the loss of my life and my army, would still have a hope left. Far removed from the scene of action, defended by a powerful fleet, a well-guarded frontier, and a warlike population, it would at least be safe from the worst consequences of a defeat. But what chances of escape are there for you, with an enemy so close at hand? In such a way, we are told, did the Swedish king open the War Council summit meeting between himself, the Elector of Brandenburg, and the Elector of Saxony in mid-September 1631. They made their last-minute preparations in the town of Torgau along the Elbe. Torgau is more famous today at the point where American and Soviet forces linked up in the final days of World War II. But in 1631, 300 years before, it was the point of rendezvous for a very different army. Rather than move to prevent the two Allied armies from uniting, Count Tilly had seized Leipzig instead on the 15th of September. Leipzig had not been well prepared for a siege, but after a few days of resistance, the gates were thrown open and its residents were treated mostly favourably. Another Magdeburg, Leipzig was not to be but it was arguably a needless distraction which Count Tilly should have avoided. He had to leave a thousand men behind to garrison the city, which further increased the discrepancy in numbers between the two armies. Tilly also possessed fewer guns than the Swedish king, 26 guns to Gustavus's 56. Well, Gustavus, as we know by now, had been experimenting with artillery relentlessly since his first campaigns against the Poles. Not merely a clash of religious beliefs, This battle was also destined to be a clash of military theory on a scale never before seen. It was a grand showdown between the old Tertio system, which had won incredible victories for Spain, versus the more flexible volley-fire manoeuvres pioneered by Maurice of Orange and William Louis in the opening years of the 17th century. These latter tactics, as we have seen, drew inspiration from Roman tactics of old, and having gone through Dutch and French filters, It was when the Swedish king had applied his own flavour to them that they seemed to reach their apex. Yet, having said that, there was a notable contrast even within the Allied army itself. The Swedes, who, having lain overnight on a parcel of ploughed ground, were so dusty they looked out like kitchen servants with their uncleanly rags, didn't present a pretty picture. The freshly gathered Saxons, on the other hand, were well-clothed, showing robust forms and fresh cheeks with well-fed horses. Skipping breakfast on the morning of the 17th of September had not helped the Swedish appearance, but beneath the dirt and grit of the Swedish conscript and his mercenary allies resided a grim determination and experience which the Saxon recruit sorely lacked, as the coming battle would show. The army spent the night of the 16th to the 17th of September laying on this ploughed ground a few kilometres from Breitenfeld, and Gustavus spent much of the morning of the 17th directing his men to the designated battlefield site. 
This involved approaching through a marshy area through which a small river, the River Lober, flowed. With this marsh at their backs, in front of the Swedish king, the plain of Breitenfeld beckoned. Roughly a kilometre away stood Count Tilly's men, and his cannon had already begun firing at the Swedish king. As the huge army marched to his destination, Gustavus rode among them, and we are told he delivered a rousing speech which might lift the spirits of those that were demoralised, hungry, tired, fearful, or all of the above. My comrades, Gustavus began, if I had to do with men whose sentiments were less known, whose courage was less tried, I might think myself obliged to excite it by words, but I see by your look that it would be at this time superfluous. In reality, it is a sword that is necessary to our cause. I ought not and wish not to despise our adversary, nor to represent the struggle with him more easy than it really is. Such a subterfuge would be out of place towards you, who have never fled from danger. I avow then, frankly, that we are in front of an enemy very powerful, exercised in deeds of blood, and so accustomed to victory, that during long wars he has seldom experienced a reverse. But the more our enemy is covered in glory, so much the more will be the renown to conquer him, and gain by a single blow the laurels he has won. All his conquests, all the booty taken by him in so many successful campaigns, will fall at once into our power. You and your soldiers have often said to me that one can secure his salvation in my service, but not his fortune. It has been thus, because that, passing through devastated countries and finding ourselves among oppressed allies, it would have been unjust on our part to have thought of amassing riches. Now you have in front of you for the first time a camp filled with precious booty, afterwards a road which passes the sumptuous villages and fertile lands of the Catholics. All that is the price of a single victory. That victory can be gained, and will be, with the aid of God. Our enemy is known to us, and we have tried our swords against a good many of his soldiers, and we know we can conquer them in spite of the arrogance which they affect. I am convinced that you will perform your duty as loyal Swedes. The Saxons, I hope, will defend with courage their country, whose prosperity is principally at stake. But I count on the justice of our cause more, even, than on our arms and on our allies. For we combat not only for men and human interests, but also for the glory of God, the true evangelical faith, oppressed and almost annihilated by the papists, the God of all goodness, who has conducted us in so miraculous a manner across sea and rivers, through fortresses and enemies, will give us the necessary force to conquer our powerful adversary. Think of Magdeburg, whose bloody ruins still smoke, and cry vengeance. Think of the thousands of innocent individuals who have been assassinated, and whose blood has gushed out to heaven. The justice of God will chastise these frightful murders, these coarse vices, these hideous crimes. This is why we attack with courage. God is with us. May these words be our rallying cry, and with the help of the Almighty, victory will be ours. It is difficult to know for sure whether such a speech was even made, or whether it would have been heard above the increasing volume of cannonade, but regardless, the Swedish army was at least prepared. It was now the task of Gustavus Adolphus to win the triumph upon which so much depended. Were he to fail, Gustavus would be just another failed interventionist, and potentially the Counter-Reformation could sweep through northern Germany like never before. Tilly's legend would reach new heights, and Sweden would surely remove itself from the conflict as quickly as possible. Should he win, though, Gustavus kept his goals somewhat modest, intending the victory to induce more Germans to his side, 
to maintain pressure on the emperor and gain security for Sweden into the future. What followed Gustavus's victory at Breitenfeld, of course, was anything but modest, as the imperial position collapsed and the Swedish king found that he had Germany in the palm of his hand like no invader before him. But back to the battle, and as they moved into position, Gustavus's men had been subject to several volleys from Tilly's distant cannon, and it was once his line was secure that Gustavus ordered his artillery to answer. Our guns answered theirs with three shots for one, was the reported boast of Gustavus after the battle, and the claim was not far off. Immediately, the discrepancy of the two sides' batteries was evident, and it was a discrepancy which would be brought to murderous effect at pivotal stages of the battle. Standing on a slight rise in the Brightonfield Plain, Tilly's men were confident after having served and won under their veteran commander for more than a decade. Indeed, with the addition of 7,000 tired but experienced soldiers from Mantua in the weeks before, Tilly boasted a force which could justifiably be described as the cream of the imperial crop. Tilly would certainly not be held back by any deficiencies in training or morale, where, by contrast, Gustavus had been careful to separate his own men from the Saxons and place them on his left flank while he commanded the cavalry on the right. It was on the right flank that the battle's opening moves were played out. An impetuous cavalry commander by the name of Pappenheim faced Gustavus's horse with more than 2,000 of his own, and over the next hour, in seven cavalry charges, yes, seven, Pappenheim learned how Gustavus had earned his reputation. The Swedish horse did not budge. Instead, it absorbed the charges by cycling through their cavalry, who were equipped with pistols and sabres and had been bathed in the fire of cavalry combat after years of fighting the fearsome Poles, who were, after all, some of the best horsemen in Europe. In spite of the uninspiring results which his charges netted, Pappenheim's action forced Tilly to mobilise his own right flank against the Saxons, who were accompanied by their elector John George. On Tilly's right flank, facing Gustavus's left flank, the experienced imperial forces under the command of Furstenberg enjoyed more successes and actually routed the untested Saxons from the field. In another timeline, we could be talking about how this was the turning point of the battle and how it handed Tilly the victory. This action would have had a far greater impact had both the Saxons and imperials not abandoned all discipline and begun pillaging the Swedish baggage train. Yet it was more unfortunate for Tilly that Furstenberg had marched his cavalry so far ahead of his infantry. This left a few thousand men to march unguarded across the battlefield, only reaching the old Saxon position by half three in the afternoon. And once they got there, they were set upon by forces which Gustavus had diverted from his own victorious flank. It was once these tired imperials were routed that the battle truly turned against Tilly. Commanding in the centre, Tilly now found that his men had to turn to face Gustavus's subordinates on their right and left flanks. One of these subordinates, Gustav Horn, charged to where the Imperial Artillery Battery had been firing for much of the morning, and after seizing Tilly's guns for himself, he turned them onto Tilly's own men. Back in the centre as well, the resolve of the Swedish infantry was beginning to tell. As smoke clouded one's vision, Cannon shot raked the limbs of men and the choking stench of burning flesh filled the air. It was plain that only the most resolute and well-drilled army could possibly survive. This was certainly the greatest test that Tilly's men had ever faced, but it was also the first time they had ever encountered Gustavus's infantry tactics. These tactics included doing away with the kind of formations, like the 
pike and musket tertio squares that Tilly had perfected. Gustavus's men were more flexible, but also designed specifically to lay down the greatest volume of firepower possible. Swedish soldiers were not compressed into unwieldy squares then, but into ranks of men who had been trained to fire their weapons from all manner of positions, using coordinated fire-by-rank drills which ensured that there was always a projectile of some kind in the air. This clash of styles utterly stumped the Imperials, until he was unable to develop an answer for these tactics on the spot. The heavy volume of fire was the perfect answer to the tightly packed pike and musket squares, but the killing blow came once the captured Imperial artillery were moved into position alongside the guns of the Swedes. Thanks to additional revolutions in artillery, Gustavus's lighter guns could be moved by a couple of men, whereas such innovations in the Imperial battery were not fully realised. The result was a slaughter which stole over 7,000 Imperial lives and cost 6,000 initial prisoners. Tilly was lucky to have escaped, but his reputation for invincibility was among the casualties at Breitenfeld on the 17th of September. The scale of the victory took some time to sink in, but it was subsequently buoyed by the taking of Leipzig the following day, along with 3,000 more prisoners. Having solidified his reputation, many of these prisoners were induced to switch sides and join Gustavus, in the process turning a great triumph into a turning point of the war. And this was a turning point, although it is palpable more in terms of political and moral terms than in the military sphere. In spite of his considerable losses, Tilly withdrew from Saxony through Westphalia and then headed south towards Franconia, where he was joined by 40,000 men and further reinforcements en route from Italy. In Silesia, the imperialists possessed a further 20,000 men, and this was before the resources of Spain or Bavaria were taken fully into account. In short, Gustavus's victory had not wiped imperial resistance off the map, nor had he expected one battle, no matter how decisive, to deliver such impossible rewards. What is truly remarkable about Breitenfeld is that, in spite of Tilly's ability to repair his army in the subsequent months, Gustavus found the political situation in Germany utterly transformed. Although Tilly would be back to fight another day, for now Gustavus had no equal in Germany and he was effectively free to go where he pleased. The 13 years which had passed since the great conflict began had brought nothing but defeats and humiliation to the Protestants, wrote Andrew Stomberg, noting that now, in a few hours, their status was changed completely. The Swedish king stood in the heart of Germany with a victorious army, and there was no army of either the Catholic League or the Emperor to oppose him. According to pious Catholics, it appeared as though God had all of a sudden turned Lutheran. Stomberg continued to note that The prestige of the emperor had received a severe and permanent setback, and the Protestants could take heart again. A shout of joy arose from them everywhere. For the Swedish king it meant the rapid accession to his ranks of new allies, both princes and cities, and for the Protestants of Germany it meant the abrogation of the Edict of Restitution. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. 
That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Gustavus would never be so free and victorious ever again. In the next few months, he had essentially all of Germany at his feet. Some limitations remained, of course. The Swedish king was by no means welcome throughout the whole empire, and he still had his shaky Saxon ally to contend with. However, with Tilly licking his wounds far to the south, Bohemia and the Rhine were now opened up. In the words of Peter H. Wilson, Gustavus now determined to seize as much land as possible before winter closed in. This race to conquer was supercharged by the news of his victory at Breitenfeld, which spread throughout Germany and soon acquired legendary status. The production of broadsheets, single sheets of paper containing a single symbolic image, sometimes produced as a short leaflet containing more detail and text, skyrocketed after Gustavus's victory. Protestant pamphleteers increased production by more than 60% after Breitenfeld. Of the roughly 250 broadsheets published in 1631, at least 150 appeared following Gustavus's thumping victory. And how was that victory depicted? Generally, they contained stern critiques of Count Tilly, who was depicted as paying for his sins at Magdeburg. Often it included the image of Gustavus and John George of Saxony side by side, an important picture for building an impression of Protestant unity, particularly after Saxon soldiers had fled the field. One broadsheet in particular deserves to be underlined. We will recall John George's warning to Count Tilly of breaking his teeth on the Saxon sweetmeats during the latter's desperate search for provisions in early September. Evidently, the reply had entered into common discourse, for a series of broadsheets entitled Saxon Sweets appeared several times from late 1631 to 1632. And in this picture, we see John George, Gustavus Adolphus and Count Tilly standing at a table where several bowls of sweets are depicted. These bowls come with labels such as Liberty, Religion, Dignity, Territory and Augsburg Confession. The symbolism continues as John George stands on two pillars labelled Good Cause and Infallible Hope, while Tilly balances precariously on two stone balls labelled Deceit and Jealousy. Further, Count Tilly is shown reaching out his arms, arms which contain the labels Avarice and Tyranny, to grab the precious bowls of Religion and Territory which lay on the table. Who comes to the rescue but Gustavus, who is shown thwarting Tilly's outstretched arms with the bowl labelled Just Zeal, while John George also gets in on the action, 
wielding a staff labelled Good Conscience to prod at Tilly and force him back away from these precious Saxon sweets, which the Protestant leaders evidently held so dear. At the top of this fascinating show is the phrase, This confectionery is sacred to us, therefore we are justly driving you away. The message which this broadsheet contains is hilarious to me, but it's also very much on the nose, though it does a good job of recording how Tilly was viewed and how Protestant propagandists wanted their religious brethren to view this Catholic generalissimo. We will also note the importance which the pamphleteers place upon those constitutional aspects of the empire. On the table, for instance, there are bowls other than those dealing merely with religion, but also with territory, liberty and justice of old German government. While the depiction of these Saxon sweets is merely a microcosm of the 150 or so broadsheets that Gustavus inspired, they tell a distinct story of an empire which was coming to see the Swedish king in nearly messianic terms. What these broadsheets tell us less about is the opportunity for enrichment and advancement to minor Germans which Gustavus's triumph allowed. Much like his defeated enemies at Breitenfeld petitioned to attach themselves to Gustavus's army, so too did previously neutral German princes began to solicit and obtain appointments in the Swedish army. By doing so, these princes recognised a new status quo, whereby the Swedish king, rather than the emperor, was their ultimate master. Not merely soldiers, but diplomats as well, elected to leave their minor German lords behind and work to represent the Swedish king instead. Greater rewards, it was plain, could only be found by serving this dynamic new force in Germany rather than one's former employer. The fluidity of German loyalties was an accepted part of this unfolding new phase of the war, as a foreign invader sought to expand his reach and influence as far as it could be projected within the remaining months of 1631, while Count Tilly was still reeling. Gustavus's decision to make for the Rhine placed in jeopardy towns and rulers which had previously been insulated by their distance from the front and close proximity to more powerful forces like Bavaria or the Emperor himself. With both of these entities in retreat, though, a power vacuum which Gustavus sought to rapidly exploit brought the Swedish king remarkable gains which he previously would never have imagined possible. For example, Erfurt, 100 kilometers southwest of Leipzig and home to a university which Martin Luther had once attended, fell to Gustavus on the 2nd of October, followed by Würzburg on the 15th of October. This latter town was particularly strong and boasted Marienburg, a formidable fortress which had been designed to defend the wealthy bishopric from foreign invaders. Clearly it failed in its task following a stiff assault on that hilltop fortress. Reportedly, pleas for mercy from the inhabitants were met with shrieks of Magdeburg Quarter from the attackers, but just as significant as its capture was how Gustavus intended to treat Würzburg in the new vision of Germany which was rapidly taking shape in his mind. Upon seizing the bishopric and its eponymous capital, Würzburg laid Gustavus's feet, but in an open letter to the city fathers, the Swedish king made it known that our royal disposition is not at all directed towards such enormities or revenge, but on the contrary, our intention is to re-establish a secure, good and permanent peace in the entire empire. And therefore, we have deemed to make use of the larger part of this diocese. That is our gracious wish. But the letter continued. 
We also regard it as an unavoidable necessity to take the land and its poor subjects into our royal grace and to put everything into a proper and secure order until all wise God, according to his good will, directs otherwise to through the desired peace. To this end, we have established a certain territorial government and appointed capable persons to it. Mild though the tone of this letter seemed in the beginning, if you read between the lines you'll see that this was nothing less than an announcement to the citizens of Würzburg that their lands would henceforth be annexed into Gustavus's expanding empire. And what if the residents of Würzburg refused the king's generous offers of a regime change? Well, Gustavus spoke plainly to them, too. Now that we have told you your duty, we will take those who are obedient into our royal protection and shelter, and graciously maintain their freedom of conscience and the public exercise of the same, as well as other political rights and jurisdictions, customs and privileges, and to open to them the justice of our already established territorial government. Those that oppose this gracious offer will be dealt with as the situation demands, and are warned that such disobedience will be punished severely. While merely one among likely hundreds of such arrangements which were to be made and rearranged over the remaining years of the war, this open letter serves as a remarkable early indication of how the Swedish king intended to proceed. For how could a foreign invader realistically support himself in the tangle of loyalties and traditions which was the Holy Roman Empire without rewriting some of the rulebook? At Würzburg and many other places thereafter, we see the Swedish king literally remove the bishopric from the emperor's possession, and therefore the empire's jurisdiction, placing it instead under a new authority, that of Gustavus Adolphus. Had he stopped there for the year, his record would already have been unparalleled, yet after a short rest, Gustavus was on the move again with his irresistible force, following the course of the river Main, that major tributary of the Rhine, to arrive in previously unspoiled lands like the Archbishopric of Mainz. The Archbishopric, which Gustavus captured a few days before Christmas, was immensely important in the constitution of the empire, because its archbishop boasted voting privileges in the Electoral College, an honour also bestowed upon the major German potentates like John George of Saxony or George William of Brandenburg. Before he had landed in this electorate and threatened to rework the entire political system of the empire, Gustavus had played the primary role in another triumph. He entered the city of Frankfurt on the Main on the 27th of November and was joined there by the Swedish Chancellor Axel Oxenstierna, who was charged with honing the administration of the king's sprawling domains and planning for the future. As his Chancellor set to this task, Gustavus made the aforementioned decision to capitalise on the imperial disorganisation and seize mines. Not merely the Rhine, but also Bohemia now lay at Gustavus's feet. Understanding that the opportunity for vengeance, a decade in the making, was now his, Gustavus instructed his Saxon allies to make for Prague, and after clearing away the anemic defenders, the city was captured from the imperialists on the 15th of November 1631. When this happened, it didn't take long for many of the exiles of the old Bohemian Revolt to return. Their experiences of the 1618-20 revolt, which had ignited the whole conflict, must have seemed like a lifetime ago, utterly detached from the mad disintegration of the old order which the Swedish king's triumph now presented. We're going to continue with the story of Gustavus's rampage through the Empire, but before we do, I just want to let you know of something very exciting. 
Are you enjoying the Thirty Years' War? Do you wish you could maybe go a little bit deeper into it? Perhaps to follow the story of someone who was there at the time in a historical fiction type of format? Well, if you didn't know already, somehow, I have written a historical fiction series set during the Thirty Years' War. It's called Matchlock, and the first book is out already. It's called Matchlock and the Embassy. Book number two in this series, Matchlock and the Rebel, is going to be coming out shortly. And I know I've said that before, but times change, PhD becomes more intense, etc, etc. So keep an eye out for Matchlock and the Rebel, the second installment of the Matchlock series. And let's just say I'm very, very excited about the whole thing. Matchlock is yet another medium for me to basically explore my creativity and my love of history And it also helps me relax when my mind is getting overloaded by PhD-related research and things. So I hope you'll check it out. Of course, patrons will get the e-books from this series delivered straight to them so they don't have to worry. So if you would like to be a patron and get this along with 40 hours of additional content that's just sitting there waiting for your ears, then make sure you become a patron at the $5 level or above that especially in these difficult financial times, would be super appreciated. In any case, let's get back to the episode and Gustavus's Mad Bender. Beneath the splendour of Gustavus's achievements must have resided several question marks. For one, it had been in the name of the elector of Saxony rather than the Swedish king that Prague had been seized. This was because, following the rupture of Saxon forces at Breitenfeld, Gustavus altered his original plans for Germany. Rather than march to Prague and then Vienna personally, as he had planned with John George, he elected to plunder the Rhine Basin instead, abandon Vienna and leave Prague to the Saxons. This change of plans, claims C.V. Wedgwood, was because Gustavus had learned he could not trust the Saxons. Yet, it is also possible that another difficult military campaign appealed to Gustavus less than a more comfortable pillaging of Catholic lands, which would certainly have been preferred by his emboldened soldiers. It is generally known that he lacked maps which detailed the geography of Germany beyond certain points of Pomerania. However, connected to this lack of geographic information was the Swedish king's lack of demographic information, seen most notably in the Swedish king's failure to comprehend the limits of German wealth. In the course of his spate of conquering down the Rhine and the Main rivers, the Swedish king demanded fantastic, ludicrous sums in the hundreds of thousands of talers, which German cities and rulers could never have paid in full or on time. And whatever was paid, Gustavus always demanded more. 240,000 talers was demanded from Augsburg, in Bavaria in 1632, even though the taxes for that city traditionally raised no more than 50,000 talers per year. Würzburg was ordered to pay 150,000 talers in October 1631, immediately after it was conquered, a policy which Gustavus applied to other new conquests too, but which completely upset the delicate financial balance in war-torn Germany. These German towns were rarely capable of producing such enormous sums on such short notice, forcing them to open new lines of credit which they could never repay. Then, after taking on the debt, Gustavus would demand even more. Nine months after capturing Würzburg and taking the bishopric into our royal protection and shelter, Gustavus was demanding another 200,000 talers. When he arrived in Mainz, Gustavus demanded 80,000 talers from the apoplectic citizens within less than a fortnight, and this was a figure 
18 times its usual tax income. By June 1632, after giving 1,500 talers a week, all the city fathers could afford, Mines simply ran out of money and its impoverished neighbours could not afford to loan it anymore. Gustavus would insist, almost certainly truthfully, that he needed the constant injection of funds to feed the bottomless pit of an army which was 80,000 strong by Christmas 1631. And these costs were set only to increase. By spring 1633, subsidies were only bringing Sweden 2.5 million thalers a year, while the total price tag of its army was nearing 10 million thalers annually, a crippling sum which was plainly unsustainable. Thus continued one of the terrible and fundamental problems of the Thirty Years' War, where the sheer size of armies more than outmatched the country's capacity to support them. This shortfall would be made up by bleeding the citizens dry. Yet it should be said that Gustavus was not unique in his approach to wresting financial sums from his neighbours. The Swedish king was only adhering to a policy of contributions, which Wallenstein had first conceived of in the late 1620s. Yet it would seem that while the king's system of contributions suffered from the same problems of wastage and corruption as Wallenstein's had, Wallenstein's had at least been more sustainable. And speaking of Wallenstein, his name was increasingly on the lips of the emperor and the emperor's advisers by late 1631, particularly after Breitenfeld had been learned of. Dismissed in autumn 1630 to appease the princes of the empire, within the year, the emperor was relying on Wallenstein to reverse the season of disasters which had befallen his position. Wallenstein, as it happened, was eager to return, for personal as well as political reasons. While Germany had been overtaken by the Swedish advance, Wallenstein's extensive estates in Bohemia and central Germany lay in the path of the invaders. If his financial situation had been bad upon his dismissal, a year later it was desperately bleak, to the extent that Wallenstein was concerning himself anxiously with sums of money which previously he would scarcely have noticed, according to Geoffrey Mortimer in his biography of Wallenstein. It was plain that the only way to rectify this state of affairs was to bow to the increasingly desperate pleas of his emperor to return for it was also clear he would not be able to rely on the retreating Count Tilly to save his lands in future. Indeed, if Wallenstein wished to avoid becoming a landless refugee, and if he wished to protect the incredible gains in land and titles which his rise in stature had granted, then he could do no more than enter the battlefield again, raise an army in his own reputation, and challenge the might of the Swedish king. Thus, 1632 promised to host a showdown more incredible than 1631. It would be the Lion of the North versus the Emperor's champion, friend and generalissimo. That is all to come in the next episode, History Friends, so I hope you'll join me then. But until you do, thanks so much for listening and supporting this show. I hope you're doing well. Slava Ukraine! And I'll be seeing you all soon. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.